Hello, it's Vikas Porta, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you to the Varki Foundation and the Jacobs Foundation for making this possible. Yesterday was a tremendous day of scholars and teachers, policymakers, all in discussion. I hope today is like that. Um, so I study sleep, this amazing behavior that we do for a third of our lives, and yet we all do it. Um, and I just, before I talk, I, I, I'm struck and still processing um, what that brave young woman spoke about uh, 10 minutes ago. And her line about she couldn't sleep in the environment that she was in, right? And so a lot of what we think about as this thing that we all do um, relies on the privilege to be able to do it. And I think in an environment like this, it's important to underscore why we need to prioritize sleep in children's lives. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. I study how the brain produces cognition and behavior. And I'm gonna tell you guys a little bit today, not just about what sleep is, I think we all know what it is, but how kids sleep. But I'll also tell you a bit about the research that we do about why it's important for the brain. And then finally, I'll tell you a little bit about sort of ways in which society, families, and even kids themselves can try and make their sleep a little bit better. Um, this, there we go. Okay, so we're all here for really the same singular purpose, right? We care about why and how we can make children learn better. And there's a lot of answers to that question. The majority of the rest of this conference is focused on those answers from two-thirds of a child's life. And I have half an hour to talk about the remaining third of that child's life, which is sleep. So how can we help from a sleep perspective? And I want to make a central case that just like over the past two decades, we focused on food security, we focused on the need for exercise in children, sleep is a pillar of health just like those other factors. Just like food and exercise support healthy living and brain productivity and learning during the day, so does sleep. And hopefully that message comes clear at the end of the talk. Now, so I know many of you came from elsewhere. I came from elsewhere. It is currently um, 3 a.m. where I came from. So if you feel the need to doze off, that is okay. Because I'm going to tell you the message right now. Sleep is critical for learning. That is the take home. And actually, by the end of the talk, you'll learn that if you did doze off, sleep may actually help you remember that information over time. So for those of you that are teachers, you may be familiar with this site. The child at 8 a.m. in the morning who's doing this. It's a very classic site. I've been there. This child is sleepy. And I think we need to stop thinking that this child is taking in the information that their teacher is teaching them let alone that it's gonna stick in the brain. So if you ask children, they will tell you that they don't sleep enough. And by the way, I'm not gonna to focus too much on what is enough, but we think for the average teenager that enough sleep is roughly nine and a quarter hours. I don't think most children are receiving that. Now the other, key, the other caveat I'll make is that there's a lot of wiggle room around that number. Some people need more, some people need less. But if you ask the children, how are they sleeping? Do they sleep enough? This is data from 40,000 adolescents in the US in the last decade. A majority of them will tell you, no, we are not sleeping enough. The children know 
they're clued in to how their bodies feel. And in fact, the, the rate of saying no goes up across secondary education. So by the time children graduate high school in the United States, nearly three quarters of them are recognizing that they are sleep deprived on a chronic basis. We don't need data to tell us that children feel it themselves. So I wanna show you a little bit about how children sleep. This is a very fancy watch. It's called an actograph. It's like a Fitbit, but we use it for research. We put it on children, and we put it on them anywhere from a week to 12 weeks, and we look to see how they sleep. And this is what our data looks like. On the rows here are gonna be days that we have children wear a watch, and across the bottom is time. And we get something that looks like this. The black bars are when the wrist is moving around during the day. Without black bars, it's not moving around. So I think you can probably find out where sleep is. And in fact, this is a child that we put on a schedule. This child had to go to bed at exactly the same time, wake up at exactly the same time. This is not the sleep of the average child. Let me show you a little bit about what a child does. So I'm gonna show you the same sort of data here, and it's gonna stretch from 1800, so 6 p.m., all the way to the next day at 1800. And let's just start during school. So during school, the child goes to bed relatively late, close to midnight. This is a 13-year-old here. And they wake up on the dot for school at about 6.30 in the morning. But what do you think happens on Saturday morning? In the States, school runs Monday through Friday. So here comes Saturday morning. The child sleeps in nearly three hours. The problem with it is that on Monday, they have to go back. So that child goes back to waking up at 6.30, lives on that schedule for five days, and then it's Friday again, they sleep in again. And two days later, they go back to the school schedule. And we have 12 weeks of data on this child. Every week looks exactly the same. This is the life of the child. Every week, this three-hour cycling. It is almost as if on the weekend they fly to the west three hours. From Dubai, it'd be like flying to Europe on Friday night being back in Dubai on Monday morning for work, and doing this constantly for each year that they are in primary education. I think most of us know we wouldn't feel good doing that, and clearly the children think that they don't feel well. So it raises the question, are they in fact jet lagged? And we think they are. So a brilliant sleep researcher in Germany, Till Ronenberg, sampled tens of thousands of individuals throughout Europe across the lifespan. So on the graph here, we have zero to 60 years on the, on the bottom axis. And he asked them, when do you like to sleep? So I'm just gonna plot that data for you here. On the bottom of the graph are people who like to go to bed early, wake up early. We call them larks or early birds. And then we have owls up on top, people that like to go to bed late, be awake at night. So I think we all can probably figure out where we are on this graph. But the key finding is that during adolescence, for both boys and for girls, children want to go to bed progressively later, wake up progressively later. And then once you hit about 30 years of age, the process reverts. We want to go to bed earlier, wake up earlier. Those of you with young children know that you go to bed before often your teenagers do. And so this creates essentially a state of jet lag for these kids because society is based on the adult schedule. But the child body is moving westward during adolescence. And so when they have to go to school that early, they are essentially jet lagged. And so for us, we talk about teen sleep as a unique place where the brain is vulnerable. We think of it as a perfect storm. Because if I were to take sleep, there's a number of pressures on the sleep system. And I just mentioned one of them, this biological delay that teenagers 
own biology, their own internal clock is changing. But there's other pressures. There are academic pressures, homework, extracurricular activities that children have to do in the evening that keep them awake. And then in today's era, we have all the social technology, which is brilliant for connecting children, but often can keep children awake. Now, some of these would be okay if the child was able to sleep in in the morning. But I just showed you that they're not, because when the morning comes, school brings with it that alarm clock at 6.30, and sleep erodes. And this is the central issue for us of why sleep is important for children and what we need to think about it. This is just to show you what indeed happens to sleep. So this is across the second half of US education. Sixth graders are roughly 10 to 11 years of age, 12th graders 18 years of age. In red, I'm gonna plot for you what the sleep that they're getting on school nights, on green, the sleep they're getting on the weekends. Hours are on the vertical axis. If I just plot weekends, children are getting close to nine hours of sleep. There's no problem, we can pack up and go home, right? So children are not actually not sleeping on their own accord. But what happens is school cuts into that amount for the factors I mentioned before. And in the United States, by the time you reach 11th and 12th grade of school, the average adolescent is losing about two hours of sleep a night, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that's 10 hours a week. That's a lot of sleep to remove week after week. It's not solely a United States issue. Data from South Korea show exactly the same thing. In fact, the difference is even more, three hours of sleep loss. And the authors of this paper attribute that to the unique and enriched um, extracurriculars that South Korean teens have to do in the evenings for school that add additional academic pressures into the system. So this is a widespread issue. Whether we're in the United States or elsewhere in the world, the biology remains the same and the impact of our school schedules remains the same on taking sleep away from kids. And so the best way to think about this is that kids are basically taking a loan out on their sleep from their credit card. And just like any loan, they have to pay back not only what they took out, but they have to pay back the interest. And that's what is incredibly hard for children to do. Two days on the weekend are not sufficient to pay that interest back. And so what that means is that we see that child at 8 a.m. on Monday morning doing this. And I'm gonna show you some data that back that up. The way we look at this is we bring children into the lab and we have them do the simplest test that we can imagine. Lie in a dark room and try and fall asleep. And we ask them how long it takes them to fall asleep. Well, we don't ask them, we ask their brain how long it takes them to fall asleep. And we do it at different times. So for teachers in the room, try and map this onto your schedule. 8.30 in the morning, first or second period, 10.30 early in the morning, lunchtime, late in the afternoon. And this is data from where I am in Rhode Island, which is near Boston. And in the ninth grade, first year of high school, school started at 8.25, and then kids transitioned the next year to a school that started at 7.20. They're pretty much developmentally in the same place, they're just starting school a, an hour earlier. And when children started a school an hour earlier, when they started at 7.20, they were able to fall asleep at 8.30 in the morning in five minutes. That's a very short sleep latency. That's what we call the amount of time it takes to fall asleep. These children are very sleepy for those factors that I mentioned. So why does it matter? Why do we need sleep? A lot of society tells us sleep is expendable. It's better to stay awake. It's better to keep working. 
Well, we know from the neuroscience that sleep supports nearly every function of the brain that we can identify. It supports learning and memory. It supports the ability to pay attention. It supports our emotional regulation. I think we all know what it feels like to be cranky the morning after not sleeping well. As well as reward issues, impulsivity. Um, and I'm just gonna show you a little bit of data from attention and learning and memory that we do to suggest what the learning life of those children are like when they're sleep deprived. So when we talk about learning in a cognitive psychology framework, we think about different stages of learning. We think about the fact that memories evolve over time. We have to learn them to begin with. We have to bring that information into our brain. There's a period of offline processing. We call this consolidation in psychology, where those memories are strengthened and sort of cemented into the architecture of our brain. And then eventually we have to take the book off the shelf, right? We have to be able to recall it. That's the ultimate goal of memory. And I want to start by asking the question, does sleep help prepare the brain to learn well? And if it does, what would happen if I take sleep away? If I make the child sleep worse, what happens to their brain's ability to learn? So that's the study that we're actually currently on doing. I want to show you a little bit of information about it. Now, we have lots of ways to test learning in the lab. The way we're currently doing it is playing Pokemon. So, this is very exciting for me because I grew up with these. And I've, I've also learned that not all kids know Pokemon, which is very interesting. Um, we actually keep track of the kids that do. But we do have kids play Pokemon, but we have them do it in a slightly different way. So if you know the cartoon, it's not, in our case, got to catch them all. It's got to catch almost all of them. So we're going to play a little game right here because I just told you guys a lot of data. But I want to take a moment to sort of let that consolidate in your brains. I would like you all to raise your hand when you see these Pokemon on the screen. Okay. These, po these four Pokemon right here. If you can't see, that's okay. But it's the worm, the dragon, Pikachu, the little lightning creature, and this little bug type creature that I don't know the name of. But if you see this Pokemon, the cat, I want you to take your hand down. And this is a game that we play with children in our studies and in our fMRI machine to look at how the brain is processing information. And we're going to play it together right here. This is the speed of the, the game that we give to children. Okay? So remember, raise your hand for Pokemon, except the cat. Try and not raise your hand for that one. Here we go. Ah. It's not easy. It's really quick. That picture's on the screen for half a second. And yet the brain has this meticulous system to be able to process that information, know when to raise our hand, know when not to raise our hand. And even a momentary lapse of attention makes that very hard to do. So we have children play this game not with raising their hands. We have them sitting inside a very expensive toy called the brain MRI to see what the brain is doing when it's trying to process this information. And we do this either after children sleep a full night in our laboratory, nine and a half hours, or when we keep them awake till 2.30 in the morning. And this is one of the things I love about what I do. A lot of my life is, is watching Harry Potter, eating popcorn, and playing board games with kids till 2.30 in the morning. Um, kids love it. It's a lot of fun. I'm sleepier than they are at that hour. Um, but they do get four hours of sleep, and then they come back in to take a brain scan. And so I'm going to show you a little bit of some brain data. I'll walk you through it. Um, this is a picture of your brain. It's called a sagittal slice. It's as if I'm looking in from the side. 
So on the left is the front of the brain, on the right is the back of the brain. Top is top, bottom is bottom. I didn't want to flip that on you. Um, and I'm going to color this brain in when it is playing this game. And I want you to focus on this region, the prefrontal cortex. This is the region of the brain that's developing nice and slowly over adolescence. It's critical for attention. It's critical for reward processing. What is good? What is bad? What is risky? It's critical for learning. And when we put children into the MRI after good sleep or bad sleep, we can see how this part of the brain changes. And I'm going to color it in for you. In red will be parts of the brain that go up when they are sleep deprived. In blue will be parts of the brain that go down, parts of the brain that are less active. And we see this from our MRI. And what you'll see on the brain is that there is no red. But, the, but if you look at the prefrontal cortex on this particular part of the brain, you can see that it is impaired when the children did not sleep well. It is as if that frontal lobe that is so important for learning has hit the off switch when the child is not sleeping well. Now, the good news is we can turn it back on by letting the child sleep. But this is just even a short perturbation to sleep. Keeping a child up till 2.30 in the morning is enough to create this deficit in how the brain is processing attention. So if your child is in, is in the classroom at 8.30 in the morning, they may not be able to pay attention to what you're saying because of factors like this. So sleep does help the brain pay attention, and it fails when the child is sleeping. But what about sleep after learning? Let's presume that information got into the brain. I hope many of you will sleep well tonight and hopefully process some of what you've learned in this amazing meeting. So how do we ask that question? We do other types of experiments. This is a very simple cognitive science experiment. I show you a list of words like dog, and I tell you that dog is something you need to remember. The big green R here is something that you need to remember. But I could also teach you cat and maybe tell you that cat is not that interesting. You can forget cat. Remember dog, forget cat. I, I have cats, I love cats, that's not a statement about cats. But we continue for another 100 words, half cued to be remembered, those are the important things, half cued to be forgotten, less important for the brain. And then we ask children to sleep on it, or we ask adults to sleep on it. This was actually done in college students, this study. And we simply ask, what impact does an afternoon nap have on these things that you had to learn at our computer screen? And so in red are going to be the individuals that stayed awake during the day. These were well-rested individuals, by the way. They, 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 we make them sleep really well before they come into the lab. But in green are individuals that took an, about an hour and a half nap in the afternoon, from about 2.30 to 4. And on the, the numbers here are just the number of words that they can remember. Higher is better. Well, it turns out that the brain is pretty good at picking out what's not important, and whether or not you napped or not napped didn't really make a difference. The brain basically didn't pay attention to the words that are not important. For words that are important, individuals remember them pretty well. Here at about eight words out of the list. But if you got a nap in the afternoon, the brain boosted by almost double its ability to remember those words. Sleep was selectively listening to wakefulness and putting those words in the places where they needed to be to learn well. So that's one piece of evidence that sleep helps the brain learn in a typically developed brain. That means a, an individual with no learning differences, an individual with no mental illness, an individual with no neurodevelopmental um, uh, issues. Sort of in what psychology is considered a control subject. But I'm particularly interested in the children that are struggling to learn on their day-to-day -day lives. And so the group of kids that we work with are children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. 
which is one of the most prevalently diagnosed disorders in childhood in the United States. And it's, it's incredibly impairing for that child to sit during the day and have struggles um, with paying attention. They also don't sleep particularly well. Sleep is something that they will talk about, their parents will talk about, their pediatricians will talk about, and yet it's still an underappreciated aspect of the condition. And for us, the window in to ADHD was that the ADHD brain and the sleep-deprived brain look very similar. I sleep-deprive an individual, they begin to look like they have attention deficits. And we actually just published a, a meta-analysis, which means we looked at about 1,000 different fMRI papers from ADHD and sleep loss. We paired them down to ones that were similar to each other. And we simply asked empirically, are they in fact similar? Or is that sort of epiphenomenal? And it turns out they are. That aspects of the attention systems are overlapping in sleep loss and in ADHD. So it suggests that these individuals' brains may be sort of functionally sleep-deprived. So we wanted to see, can sleep help kids with ADHD learn? And so we don't teach them words, we teach them to play the piano, a different type of learning here, procedural learning rather than word learning. Now we don't use a piano exactly, we use something that's a little closer to Guitar Hero. We have kids learn a sequence that they have to type. So all of you can actually do this tonight. You can do this before you go to bed, do it in the morning, see how good you are. It's a remarkably powerful effect. We have you put your hands on the keyboard, on keys 41324, or 1234, and simply type out that sequence, 41324, repeatedly. And we have you do this for 30 seconds, as fast as you can without making mistakes. And then we take you 30 seconds of rest, and we repeat that for about 12 rounds. So it takes about 12 minutes to do this task. And we simply ask, how good are you at typing that sequence repetitively without making a mistake? Okay. And we ask whether, if you sleep on that problem, does sleep help you learn that sequence? I introduced it as playing the piano. It's the concept of whether, yes, practice makes perfect, but perhaps practice with sleep makes even more perfect. And here's what we found in children with ADHD, and this was really interesting to us. When we tested them in the evening, we saw that children with ADHD were impaired on this task. And what typically happens with children with ADHD is they can actually type the same amount of sequences, but they make more errors along the way. That impulsivity takes over and they're rushing through the task. And that shows up as this difference in the evening. We then have children sleep in the lab for about 10 hours and we test them the next morning. And what we see is that in the morning there was no difference between children with ADHD and sleep and, and typically developing kids without ADHD. Both groups of children received a bonus across the night. Those with ADHD received the greatest bonus. Now, the caveat to this study is that this is pretty much the best sleep we could give a child with ADHD. We structure their sleep for two weeks before they come into the lab, and then we give them this, this 10 hours in a, in a cool, dark space to sleep really well. It's not the sleep children with ADHD get on their own lives, and I think that's because that's one of the reasons why they don't see these benefits in their day-to-day -day life. So can sleep help these children? We think it can. So I've shown you that sleep can, in fact, bestow uh, some benefits for learning that occurs when sleep occurs after the initial learning, both for word-based learning like you would have in school and also other types of learning like motor sequences. So I go back to the beginning now and say, what, why are we here together? Our, our goal is to help children learn. 
And I think sleep is, again, critical. So if you did doze off on this first slide, like I gave you permission to do, I hope you wake up now and have consolidated that fact. But then let's add something to it. It's not just that sleep is critical for learning. It's also critical for remembering. Sleep both sets up the brain to take new information in and allows the brain to sort of marinate that information overnight so that kids are able to eventually learn it. The sleep field has focused a lot on the remembering part. It has focused less on the original learning part. And of course, you can't remember something that the brain was not prepared to, to fully learn in the first place. So both of these processes have to work in parallel, and both are boosted or benefit from a good night's sleep. So what can we do about it? How can we help children sleep and sleep better such that they're able to see these gains. And this is what I think is so exciting about this type of meeting, right? Because we have change makers here that are able to, to work on some of these problems. That traditionally in academia, when we're back in our labs, we don't have the levers to move. So I'm gonna talk about change at a couple of different levels. I'll begin at the big picture societal level. I'll go down to a child level. And I think in reality, all of these levels need to work together. And they need to be adapted to the context of the family, the culture, the country in which they're in. There's no one-size-fits-all solution. But I want to start with what's been very, um, a very big topic in the United States, for example, which is can we move the start time of school? So in the US, school start times are typically latest for young kids and earliest for older kids. And I told you a little while ago that the biology is the exact opposite that it's the teenagers that need to go to bed later, wake up later, and yet we've structured our school system in exactly the opposite need that the children have for sleep. It's typically structured around what works for the parents and what works for the adults. So what can we do about it? This was a major study in Seattle, Washington, came out in about January where they did make a district-wide change in a number of uh, middle and high schools in the US, and they pushed them back an hour. And the first question people ask is, well, did the kids actually sleep more? The, the, I think the conventional wisdom is that if you push school back an hour, kids will go to bed later, and, and they'll still not sleep. That turns out not to be true. Children will sleep that extra time. They may not get all of the hour, but they will get substantial gains. And that's because they're not staying up late on their own volition. They're staying up late because that's when the biology wants to stay up to. So if you let them sleep in an hour, they will. But the bigger question for these researchers in Seattle was not just do they sleep more, it was ultimately do their grades improve, which is really the end product of what we're trying to do here. And in a, a remarkable result, it did. So this is data for children um, who had to start school at 750. Their grade average was about a 77. In the US system, that's a C or a C plus, i.e. an average grade. For the children that were sleeping under the condition of an 845 school start time, they had about a 4% gain in that grade point average, up to the B range, the 82 range, an above average grade in the United States. That's a remarkable improvement. That's a letter grade change by sleeping a little later. And this you know, may be, in fact, because we can remedy that sleepy child at 8.30 in the morning. We can bring them back up so that they are not dozing off in first period math class. 
There was a behavioral economist, an education economist in the US that did a study of districts that moved later and moved earlier. And the remarkable thing about that sort of economic study was not only that it replicates some of these results, but that the return on investment, the cost of that intervention was cheaper than other common educational interventions, like increasing busing schedules, smaller classrooms, more teacher training, et cetera. So I still think even in the US where this study made a big splash, we're still not taking it seriously as a policy intervention. It's a hard thing to do. There's a lot of inertia in the system set up around schools. So maybe we have other ways to look at the system. This is data from Brazil that simply asks the question how long it takes children to get to school. Leave the school start times alone. And we can think of different ways that children go to school. Do they have to wait for a bus? There are districts um, that I'm aware of where children have to do an hour and a half on the bus to get to school. So if school starts at seven and your bus ride is 90 minutes and you're a teenager who wants to sort of not just roll out of bed and go to school, but you wanna look good for your, your friends, you have all the social pressures that children have, you're not waking up 90 minutes before school to hit the bus, you're waking up in even an hour before that. So seven o'clock, 90 minutes, we're at 5.30, an hour before that, five o'clock, 4.30. That is the life of some children. Is the children biking to school? Is school at a short distance? My, my Dutch colleagues remark on how close school is to home in many Dutch cities and the short commute that they're able to have on a bike. Or are they even walking to school? And that's not to say that they're walking far or short. Some kids walk a quite a distance to get to school. But even there, they may have a bit more control over their school schedule than waiting for a bus schedule. And so these researchers in Brazil asked, what's the impact of these different transportation schemes on sleep? And so they, they looked at how long children take to get to school, and they said, let's just bin it into kids that take less than 10 minutes, 10 to 20 minutes, and 20 or more minutes. So I'd like each of you to think about how long it took you to get to school when you were a child, and how long that, what that did to your sleep schedule. Because what was remarkable from this study is that if you sleep less than 10 minutes, you get about seven point, or sorry, if, you, if it takes you less than 10 minutes to get to school, you get about 7.8 hours in bed. But if your commute was longer than 10 minutes, you lost nearly half an hour of time in bed for these children in Brazil. That's a disproportionate change. A 10 minute change in transportation, a half an hour change in bedtime or the amount of time in bed. So that's actually a window where I think we could make some change, restructuring around transportation to school to optimize the amount of, times, uh, the amount of time children can spend in bed. So those are some societal or policy level changes. We can also look at how we treat sleep as a family unit and how we treat sleep as a cultural unit. So this comes from the Netherlands, where this nurse, A.G. van Holst, in 1916 published this document, which um, I have a Dutch master's student who works with me. I cannot pronounce Dutch, so I won't even attempt to. But what it translates to is rest hygiene and regularity. And I want to focus mainly on regularity. And this has been sort of built in or enculturated within the Netherlands over the past century. It's on billboards, it's on parent guides, it comes from pediatricians. It's part of what parenting is in the Netherlands, a focus on regularity of schedules. And I think one of the biggest things we can do with kids if we wanna help their sleep is try and minimize that three hour swing on the weekends. Having regular schedules for kids, including on the weekends, can pay off dividends. 
limiting evening screen time. We're going to talk, Candace is going to talk about uh, devices in a little while. We can talk about this much later. There's a lot of controversy on this. I'm not going to make any claims about the light coming off of our screens, but only that children are bringing their screens into bed. And if you're texting, you're not sleeping. And for me, that's the big window of change when it comes to sleep, is to structure how we use technology so that it doesn't constantly evade our sleep. If you're sleeping without a silence on your phone and every ding is coming in throughout the entire night, you're not going to sleep very well. Keeping bedrooms calm, cool, and dark. This is what we preach about sleep. But again, as I said in the beginning, this is really a privilege that not every child has. And so working with schools and families, just like we work on food security, we need to work on sleep security. Um, technology out of the bed I already mentioned. And this is for the teachers, which is managing the amount of homework kids receive. And when I went to high school, the teachers didn't talk to each other about when they assigned the tests. So each teacher thought that they were assigning reasonable amounts of homework, but when you put it all together, it was unbearable for the students. So things we can do in the evening to make the evening better matters as much as things we can do in the morning. So one of the questions we do get about homework, however, is is it better to stay up late for my child to finish their homework and study maybe a bit extra, or is it better to go to bed? And the answer I usually give is, well, if they have to get the homework done, they have to get the homework done. And that can be solved with restructuring studying in the evening. But the extra cramming, the staying up late to do a little bit more on the test, there was some remarkable data from the University of California in Los Angeles that showed when college students stayed up late to study, their grades actually got worse. And this was, um, when I tell this to students, they cheer. They think they don't have to study. But they do have to study. But the key factor in that, in that research was that the reason their grades got worse was that they lost sleep. They were trading sleep. They were making this sort of exchange. And that exchange does not pay off. The flip side of this coin is, well, should my child wake up early to study, to finish the paper? And that doesn't work either. Because just because you're waking up early doesn't mean you're, you're sleeping more. In fact, you're still robbing yourself of sleep. And that's, again, I want to bring it back to the brain. Remember that one of the reasons why staying up doesn't work is that sleep loss is putting that off switch on the brain. So the brain is not equally efficient at studying across sleep loss. In fact, the brain can't really do the job anymore late at night for these teenagers. They need to get that sleep. So again, our goal is to help children learn, and I think one way to do that is prioritizing sleep. In fact, putting sleep on the same plane as food exercise um, and other aspects of health as a pillar of health on which the rest of the life for the child can stand. And I think if we can do this, we can transform this sleepy child into a much more alert classroom. And with that, I'd love to take some questions. Thank you very much. So we do have about five to eight minutes for questions. The shorter your questions are, questions, not co-statements, please, the more questions Jared can answer. And you choose. Yeah, yeah I saw, ma'am, I saw you first. Go right ahead. Thank you. Would a nap in the afternoon, would a nap in the afternoon make up to uh, yeah, so the question is, sleep? Would a, question, would a nap in the afternoon make an improvement? And naps are tricky things, right? Because I think we all know if we sleep too long in a nap, the night is harder. But the answer is yes. 
if you are sleep deprived, a nap is a great countermeasure. In fact, the only real fight for being sleep deprived is to sleep. What I will say about naps, and particularly for kids, is to try and keep the nap short. Even a 15 or 20 minute nap can restore cognitive awareness without impacting sleep that night. If the nap goes into an hour, then you've actually paid too much of that debt off and it's gonna be hard to sleep that night. So try and keep the nap short if needed. Sir. Yeah, just a question on, on uh, screen content. Um, have you ever looked into whether, um, so you mentioned texting and, and that sort of a disruptor in a kind of social way, but is watching TV or maybe reading something on a screen? Because I fall asleep if I read. Yeah. Right? Does it matter if it's on a screen or in a book? Yeah, um, so many people fall asleep reading, and, and that actually can help people sort of structure their sleep. It's different from a screen because you're not getting the constant auditory stimulation. It takes a while for the brain. The brain is sort of like a switchboard, an old telephone switchboard. It has to take all those inputs and sort of cut them off so that the phone doesn't ring on the other end. And it takes a while for that to settle in. So if the screen is on, that sound is still there, it's still entering the brain, and that can disrupt sleep. That's why TVs are worse than reading. Reading can actually help people fall asleep. Yeah. Ma'am. Yeah, hello. I come from India, where uh, uh, population is so much that, you know, we have a lot of competitive exams. And uh, many of our children don't have smartphones, so that is not an issue. But then they are so stressed that they are unable to sleep well, so they take a long time to fall asleep. So is there anything that we can uh, give them as tips? Well, I think, I think there's, there's two parts to that. Thank you very much for the question. The first part is that sort of stress of the requirements that we're putting on kids. And that's a bigger picture. That's a sort of societal change. In fact, that was what the authors of the Korean study attributed that even greater gain to. The second issue is what can we do for the child in the moment? And I think that's where keeping the other pillars of health intact become important. Wellness broadly will support sleep. Obviously, mindfulness uh, is a great way to relax. There's all these apps now, the calm headspace, that have these sort of ways to calm down. They work. I use them. Others use them. But even exercise, how, when you're eating, if you're, if, you're, if you're not just going to bed right after studying, right after your homework, you're giving the child a chance to calm down, that can pay off dividends. And that can be the difference between taking an hour to fall asleep and taking 20 minutes to fall asleep. So the rest of wellness is important too. And I think, sir. Thank you. Could, could you expand a little bit on sleep's role in problem solving and creativity? Yeah. And how can we promote that in our students or, or even understand it ourselves? So the question was about sleep and creativity. I don't know if many of you know the story. Sleep has been attributed as the reason for a lot of insights throughout history. So the benzene ring being one of them, the periodic table. The song Yesterday was thought to have been written during sleep, that they actually heard the chord progressions during sleep. Sleep does support creativity, and there's ways that we can test it in the lab. We can train you on these games that have hidden rules, and only if you sleep do you really clue in on the shortcuts. So how do we promote that? We think that the part of sleep that most supports creativity is rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep. And REM sleep is most prominent in the morning. Okay? And that's the sleep children are losing to wake up early. So it may, in fact, be that another consequence of how our children sleep in their daily lives is that that particular part of sleep, 
is being robbed from the kid. And so therefore, put, you know, structuring sleep better may actually help that as well. There's no real way that we know to sort of move sleep into that stage, but simply helping sleep more broadly is going to pay off dividends. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Question, let me tell you, A, the next session will be on kids and smartphones. So if that is interesting uh, to you, stay in this room. And the other thing I wanted to say, at 1.45, Jared will also be part of the uh, discussion session, so where we have researchers and Vaki teacher ambassadors discussing exactly these questions there. There will be time for interaction and a lot of questions yeah, there. But I'll take two more, so you two. Uh, I can run to the Thank you very much for this informative session. Um, I come from Saudi Arabia, and maybe some of the people here are from the GCC, and they know that the culture, as you said, tends to encourage children to stay up later, even 10, 11 p.m. Yeah. Um, and we start school earlier, around 7.30 a.m. So what did you do, or do you know any um, parents' awareness campaigns or school awareness campaigns um, that we could do or we can uh, try to push in the region to, to help parents be more aware of that, because I believe it's, it's more of a family and cultural yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely, thank you. So the question has been, how, what are the sort of grassroots efforts that parents have made? And that's actually where the change really can come from, right? Which is that it, convincing school boards really has to convince the parents. So in the US, there's um, a great foundation. The exact name is, is, is blanking on me. I think it's the Start School Later group. I think if you just Google Start School Later, um, they have a whole organization website of scientific advisors, parent things, letters that are form letters that you can write to your lawmakers and your policymakers, to your principals and teachers that distill all the information that I gave you and others do that you can use to make the case. And I think by making that collective argument and getting other parents on board, that's how the change will ultimately happen. So Start School Later is the organization. Yeah. All right, sir. Sorry for taking the last question. Um, thank you so much for your wonderful, um, inspiring um, session. Um, my name is Kazia. I'm a 2016 Global Teacher Prize Top 10 finalist, and also I'm Vice Principal in Tokyo. Um, um, on the other hand, I'm, you know, on one hand, I'm kind of promoting a good, efficient learning system. But on the other hand, as a vice principal, I'm pushing students to come early, right? So you're talking about like uh, your school, you have, you maybe we may have to change your school system, like you know, pushing back the starting time to eight late. But um, you said, generally speaking, you said like children or child, but the, at what age, what grade student, um, people usually get used to kind of like adult time on the clock or yeah, schedule, so you know? Um, is it possible to flip the slides back on really quickly? I can just show you the answer. Um, I'm not sure. Okay, so the short answer is that, um, so that curve of getting later goes out into the late 20s. And it doesn't start rescinding till after that. And so the question is what is adult, right? Because if adult is early 20s, they're still moving. If adult is 40, well then you have to wait till the curve goes the other way for the individual to, to feel comfortable in that environment. The other key piece, and I'll leave you with this, is that one of the important things about why we study sleeping kids is that adults get to pick when they work largely. Not always, not everyone has that privilege, but you at least can think about when do you prefer to work, 
and what can you do in your own autonomy to make that happen? Kids don't have that luxury. They, they go to school when, when, when adults tell them to go to school. And so that's, that's the inequity across adults to kids in making room for healthy sleep. And certainly, getting to the adult-like phase happens after university. Teenagers won't catch up to that. Yeah. Thank you all very much. Thank you.